right. Are you guys ready for 2024? It's going to be a circus, culturally, politically. So uh, the first Thursday night of the year, we all get together and we pray for the next year. So you're welcome to come Thursday night. We have the potluck at six. So if a bunch of you are going to show up, you better bring some food. Okay. And then we'll pray. And also, I'm going to be praying for um, just persecuted Christians around the world, especially um, Nigeria, uh, Sudan. I don't know if you have been seeing that, but the, um, the killing over there is, is crazy. So, yeah, so we'll be praying for our brothers and sisters around the globe and um, that we can pray some sanity into our nation, morally, culturally, politically. Sound good? All right, well, let's, uh, let's review a little bit to get back on track. So, uh, of course, we are currently in the Passover week and uh, in Matthew 22, and we know that ever since Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, right, riding a donkey down the Mount of Olives, uh, the people were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? Hosanna in the highest. Ever since then, uh, the Pharisees have been after Jesus, right? They've been after him since, you know, pretty much the beginning of, of his ministry. But when he was receiving public recognition as Messiah, as heir to the throne of David, they were just after him. And since then, things have only escalated. You know, he went into the temple and he demonstrated authority over the temple complex. He called it my father's house. Well, that demonstration authority to the Pharisees was just more than they could handle. And, uh, and, and in fact, what happened when Jesus cleansed the temple of all those who were making a profit off the worshipers is he shamed the Pharisees because it should have been the Pharisees that took care of that and stopped the shenanigans of the high priest and all of the mess that was going on there. And then, as Jesus was interacting with the Pharisees, he began to attribute Old Testament scripture to himself and to say that he was the fulfillment of prophecy. That made them completely lose their minds. Further, in Jesus' parables, he presented the Pharisees as the villains, that they represented those who persecuted and murdered the prophets of old, and his parables were prophetic because he said, and you're going to kill me. It's just, it's just coming. So every encounter with the Pharisees just escalated the tension and their hatred for Jesus. And Jesus, you know, he was just relentless. He was confronting, he was accusing, he was, and he was shaming them publicly only because they brought it on publicly. I mean, he would be in the middle of teaching the people, they would interrupt and they would challenge him. And he was like, well, if you really want to know right now. And so he would, he would just, it just shame them publicly. But they just coming back, they keep coming back for more. They show no sign of humility, no sign of repentance. And then after the parable of the wedding feast, the Pharisees decided, we're not organized enough. So what they do is they convene this, they have this meeting to get organized. And the, the result of the meeting produces an interesting relationship with the Pharisees. And by that, they make a, a strategic plan. I'm sort of proud of them, okay? But they should have schemed a little bit more. And then following this first interaction with the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees uh, try to take their best shot. So why don't we stand?
for the reading of God's word. Matthew 22, verse 15. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I'll read through, I think just for the fun of it, verse 34. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the ways of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the persons of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. In verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. They're going to give it another shot. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord Lord Jesus, we thank you for your example. Uh, We thank you that you truly are, even though the disciples of the Pharisees were mocking you. You are the, the truth teller. You say it like it is. And uh, so we thank you for your example. We thank you for your instruction. And so we just ask that by your grace, you would teach us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Let's go back to the beginning, get some historical context to all of this. It says, then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. Entangle is the idea of, of trapping a wild animal. And Jesus was wild, wasn't he? (laughs) So it's just out of their desperation and pride, the Pharisees get together, they organize a plan. And here's the the problem with all of it. It's not to protect the people from this dangerous false prophet named Jesus, but to preserve their own reputation and to maintain this this adoration of the public. That's what this is all about. The goal was to trap Jesus in his own words, But here, in this one, they were hoping to incriminate Jesus, incriminate him. And if they couldn't do that, they would get the people to turn away from him. So together they come up with a scheme. It's going to include a political group that they would otherwise never mingle with. But people often become friends when they need to rid themselves of a common enemy. That's what's going on here. 
So it says, and they sent to him, sent to Jesus, their disciples. So the Pharisees sent their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. So the Pharisees, they send their disciples and this group called the Herodians to Jesus. Now, I'm not sure why the Pharisees didn't go themselves. I'm not sure why they sent uh, their disciples, their students. Uh, perhaps they thought that Jesus would um, be more open with them and, and just kind of get himself in trouble. Uh, but I don't, I'm not really sure of all that. But the purpose for sending the Herodians, it, it's not subtle at all. Okay? The Herodians were not to be confused with the relatives of Herod. Uh, this is a partisan group. And they were loyal to Herod Antipas, who's, who was the son of Herod the Great. Right? So what's up with their involvement? Okay. Now, because of the question they were going to pose to Jesus, they must have been thinking, if we're going to question Jesus about the issue of taxes, we better have the appropriate witnesses present. Okay? That is, groups of people who have opposing views on the one issue. Okay? Yeah. So depending on how Jesus answers is bound to cause problems with one group or the other group, which could then in turn cause problems for him. If he offends the right group, it could bring the wrath of Rome upon him. And the Pharisees would love that, wouldn't they? Yeah. So it's actually a good plan. It's devious, but it's well-fashioned. So real quick, let's talk about these different groups and why it matters. We have Herodians. We have Zealots. Okay. We have the Pharisees. And we have patriots. Okay? We might say, as the Pharisees said, all the persons of men whom Jesus is not a respecter of are present at the party. Okay? And if he truly does not regard the persons of men, he is likely to get himself in trouble. So first, the Herodians. As we said, they're loyal to Herod Antipas. Okay? They're essentially employed by the Roman government. And so they actually depended on the taxes imposed on Israel to line their pockets. So they in favor of taxes or against it. Favor, big time. On the other extreme of these guys were the Jewish zealots. Now they weren't invited to the party because the Pharisees know that they're already there. Okay? In fact, one of Jesus' disciples, if not two, were a part of the zealots. Now Simon the zealot, that's kind of a giveaway, right? Certainly a zealot. But Many scholars believe that Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, that he was a zealot. Okay? So not only are they mingled among the crowd, Jesus has at least one of them as his disciple. Okay? Now, the zealots were these, these radical, anti-Roman, ultra-patriotic Jews. They're, of course, totally, totally against foreign taxation. They're against foreign occupation. They're against pagans in any way which the Romans were. Okay? In fact, historically, it was the actions of the zealots that brought the Romans against Jerusalem in the temple in 70 AD. We commonly think that it was because of just you know, the Jews. No, the zealots, came, they got organized, they came in, and they killed the high priest. They replaced him with their own, and they slaughtered all the Romans in Jerusalem. Rome was real happy. Okay? So Rome came in with, with legions, and they destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, enslaved thousands of Jews, slaughtered countless others. Okay, now not as extreme as the zealots, 
were the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, they hated pagan Rome. They hated their rule, they opposed taxation, but they were pretty quiet about their opposition because they were afraid to provoke the wrath of Rome. The zealots were not, okay? And then you had the average Jew, the, the average citizen. Now, typically, uh, the Jewish citizens were patriotic, and on them was opposed heavy taxation, which oppressed them, okay? So they hated Roman taxes, but were helpless to change the situation. So now you kind of see what's going on here. You have all these parties present, and it's a showdown, and it's, it's a well-fashioned plan, okay? Before we look more at it, I want you to notice something real quick. Notice how these disciples of the Pharisees, they come to Jesus in the sight of all the different groups. Their evil intentions are cloaked with flattery, with compliments, okay? Now, any compliment from an enemy should be received with great caution and suspicion, right? You guys read the story of Joab, and he greets Amasa. How is your health, brother? And he grabs his beard with his right hand to kiss him. It's a it's an ancient Jewish custom, but in his left hand is a sword. Yeah, watch out for those people. Yeah. So the disciples of the Pharisees come to Jesus. It's, it's under the direction of the Pharisees, so it's all planned, saying to Jesus, we know that you are true, that you only teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care what others think, for you are no respecter of persons. All true, but coming from them, it's just, it's taunting, it's mocking, it's condescending, okay? Now, I would say, we often say, careful what you ask for, but I think it should be added, be careful how you affirm people when you mean to taunt them, especially Jesus, because they're asking him to prove what they're saying. They're asking him to prove it, not only his position on the taxes, but the issue of his character. So they say, this is their question, tell us, therefore, in front of all these parties, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, they make it a religious question. They say, is it lawful? And what they're doing is referring back to Deuteronomy 17, okay? So the question is this, is it, is it a moral, spiritual thing? Is it okay for Jews to pay taxes to a foreign government? Now, the problem is that Deuteronomy 17 doesn't actually apply to this. Now, if you've noticed the Pharisees up to this point, their understanding and application of the scriptures can be quite wacky, okay? So the stretch in this one, but the point of that passage is, is that Israel was not to appoint a foreign king over them who they would then support with their taxes. That's not the issue with Rome. Rome came in with the legions and said, Israel's ours. And the, the, the armies were so massive that Israel was like, okay, <laughs> said and done. So Rome imposed its power over Israel and then imposed taxes. Now here's the real problem. If the Jews were obedient to God and they were loyal to the covenant of God, there would be no Roman occupation. God had told them that if they were faithful to the covenant, that just a few of them would put to flight a thousand foreign enemies. Okay? But because of generations of legalism and lip service to God, they're in this predicament. So in reality, it wasn't actually a matter of religious law from Deuteronomy. Be that as it may, if Jesus says, yes, it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar, he'll get the Herodians off his back, but it would offend the zealots, the patriots, and even some of his disciples. If he says no, it may please the crowds, but the Herodians then can go to Rome and bring charges of rebellion against Jesus. Wouldn't that work out fine? Okay. 
You see, Jesus' following was already large enough to get the attention of the Romans. The Romans were always, especially among the Jews, looking out for insurrection. The Jews were known for it, okay? They were just an unruly people. And so they paid close attention because they loved their taxes, okay? And they didn't like the Jews anyway. So an accusation from the Herodians would not be easily dismissed. So Jesus is in somewhat of a pickle, okay? How does he respond? With diplomacy. (laughs) But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Yeah. So apparently the occasion was appropriate for name calling, but I'm not really sure how to apply that in my own life. (laughs) Now, if the Pharisees had actually come to Jesus out of genuine concern, you know, for the defense of the word of God or to protect the people from a dangerous heretic or, or false prophet, he would have commended them and then corrected their methods. But perceiving, I'm sorry, but preserving the word of God and protecting the people, it wasn't their motive. These men were indeed wicked. They were pretending to be pious lovers of God and noble shepherds of his people. It's, it's all a show. They're desperately trying to get rid of Jesus in order to restore their popularity and this celebrity status that they had. Okay, if, if there was action figures back then uh, in the nation of Israel, it would be of Pharisees. Okay? They were just so admired by the people. All right? So Jesus just tells the truth. Notice, without respect for persons or position, so not to contradict their flattery from verse 16. You see that? You said it, I'll defend it. Right? No respecter of persons. So before Jesus answers the question, he exposes the truth about their character. These are just religious pretenders with wicked motives. So he says, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So regarding the Roman coin, the denarius, Jesus asked two questions, whose image And what is the inscription on the coin? They only answer the question about the image, okay? They say nothing about the inscription. Now, this is my assumption. The inscription is is blasphemous. And so they probably didn't want to say it out loud because the Jews were superstitious about that kind of stuff. So they just said, it's Caesar on that thing, okay? One side of the coin had just an image of Caesar Tiberius' face. On the other side, he is crowned. He's seated on the throne, and he's wearing the garments of the high priest. Okay? The inscription said, Tiberius, in Latin, son of the divine Augustus, high priest. Son of the divine. It's a claim to deity. He's claiming to be a demigod. See? So any man's claim to deity was blasphemous to the Jews, which posed a moral conflict for them. Now, it's because of the, the pagan inscription on the coin that the Jews would not allow these coins to go in the treasury of the temple. And that's why, remember, they were exchanging money in the temple for the denarius, for the, um, the Jewish coin, which I've just lost the name of. Shekel. Yeah, that's right. My resident scholar here next to me. Yeah. So to Jesus' question, they just kind of, whatever. But Jesus responded. He said, render, and I know we all, don't like Jesus' response, but render, give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. How many of you guys like that? <laughs> you don't always get a consensus in a group this big, but that's pretty good. 
<laughs> and to God, the things that belong to God. So here's the gist of Jesus' statement. The coin. Because it bears the image of Caesar, taxes should be rendered to Caesar. Give to him what belongs to him. Okay? And then, sadly, when we get into the epistles, Peter and Paul, they instruct the church later that believers should recognize they should honor all authority that is ordained by God. And because civil government has been ordained by God, we should support that government with our taxes. Now, I do not want to get into the nitty-gritty of Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. I just want to say a couple things. Okay. Jesus commands his people to pay taxes, which God ordained okay, to be used by government to reward good and harass evil, and not much else. Okay? That's the, that's the theological statement about taxes. And here's the problem that we face in our conscience, and the early church faced it. Knowing that Rome used their taxes for evil things, Jesus still commanded his people to pay. Okay? Now here's how all of this works in the economy of God. It's the same way with authority, as we've talked about in our discussion on dominion a couple of months ago. God's people will not be held accountable for what government does with their taxes. Okay? God will judge those who do evil things with the things that are given them. Okay? So that's probably uh, one of the big reasons that Paul in 1 Timothy 2 says, pray for the government, because God desires that all men be saved. And if we could get more saved people that are thinking biblically at the top, our taxes would be used morally, they would be used wisely, okay? and uh, not for their own selfish purposes. So anyway, don't just complain about government, which is super easy, but pray for them. Pray that God would intervene. And, and we see examples of that in the scriptures with Joseph, okay? especially with Daniel. Okay? Daniel led Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan, right, into faith of the living God. And it affected the way that he ruled. So let's, let's pray for our government. We'll do that. Um, I do it a lot, um, but we're going to do it collectively the first Thursday, uh, this coming Thursday of next year. All right, let's not talk about taxes. <laughs> so by Jesus' response, he got the Herodians off his back, though he did not care what they thought either way. Okay, remember as the Pharisees said, he only speaks what? The truth. Okay, but what about all the religious patriotic Jews? Jesus, essentially, in the second part of his answer, he's, he's talking to the Herodians as well. He's talking to everybody, okay? Something that bears eternal weight. He says, render to God the things that are God's. So here's what all this means. As the coin bears the image of Caesar, all people bear the image of God. Amen? Okay. And as the coin bearing the image of Caesar belong to Caesar, every person, because they bear the image of God, belong to, to God. Okay. And as the coin bearing the image of Caesar should be rendered to Caesar, every person, because they bear the image of God, their lives, their will, their all, should be rendered to God. In Jesus' response, he's actually recognizing two kings, or two governments, we might say. Those on earth and the one in heaven. One human, one divine. One temporal, taxes aren't forever, and one eternal. One with delegated authority, the other with ultimate authority. So God ordained human government for the good of man, to promote, to reward good, and to harass evil. Okay? 
But man relentlessly resists and rebels against the ordination of God, making government serve their own selfish, sinful purposes. But the government of God, Paul says, is characterized by righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, and its attributes are unchanging. That's the kingdom of God, Romans 14, verse 17. And the kingdom of God belongs to those who love God, who abide in Christ through faith, relying upon his work of redemption at Calvary's cross and the power of his resurrection. The kingdom of God belongs to those who render to God everything that belongs to him, right? You know, we store up treasures in heaven, everything. We render all to God. And then when we end up in heaven through faith in Christ, we inherit all that there is there. We owe all to him, not just our existence. As Paul says, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again, so that we would live for him. All all that we are should be rendered to God. That is why Jesus calls us to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Every faculty, every part of our being is his. It should be rendered, offered to him. Okay? That which bears his image should honor his image by rendering it back to him. Now, the way that we you know, render it back to him is by accurately representing him. Amen? Our words, our thoughts, our deeds, walking in step with him by the way that we engage with the world and use the things in it the time, the attention we give it, the things we place our affection on. Now, if you see clearly that you, know, you belong to God, actually, you will think again about how you use your mind, the things that you expose your eyes to, the things you put your hands to, the way that you spend your money and the time you give to things. Belonging to him, and we could say rendering you to him, means adopting his values executing those values in the world, in all of your relationships, your family, at your job, at Walmart, in politics. You're rendered to him by loving him. You are created in his image to be reflecting his image back to him and by being an ambassador in this world. When we look at our life in those terms, in biblical terms, it really makes the issue of taxes less concerning and the things of God more sobering and pressing. Amen? Don't set your mind on the things here, but the things above, things that are eternal. This is all coming to an end. Peter says it's all going to go up in smoke. We got, we got one life to live here, and we live for the rest of eternity. Amen? Rendering to God what is his. So the greater estimation we give to his priorities, I think the less we're concerned about things that are not that important here. So Jesus' response to everyone present was intended to recalibrate their hearts and minds to the things that truly matter. He wasn't trying to appease the crowds. He wasn't trying to appease the Herodians. All he was doing was honoring his father. They're the ones that said Jesus only concerned himself with the things of God and truth, and they were right. So Jesus was here in this moment rendering unto God all that belonged to him, and he was doing it as an ambassador publicly. So when you deal with Jesus, you deal with the truth no matter who was around or what the issue was. He belonged to God and did all those things that pleased his Father. That's rendering to God the things that are God's. Yeah. 
When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Before I lose track of my thoughts here, regarding taxes, I said we were going to talk about it. (laughs) The scriptures tell us that if we have any power at all in ourselves to help others, we're obligated to do it. So if we're able to change the way tax money is spent, what do you think you should do? You should do it. Yeah. All right, back to our, our text. So this is kind of interesting. The disciples of the Pharisees so who, that, that so admired their teachers, they marveled at Jesus' response. And now they had to go back and report to the Pharisees that their plotting against Jesus came to nothing. Not only were they not able to surprise Jesus with their question, it was as if he had been studying for years his response to them. I mean, it was like, wham, he was ready. Yeah, I just love that about Jesus' answer. And, and I think that this is good for us too. You know, because the ultimate matter to Jesus was the matter of God. All answers came back to God. They were founded on God, which made every answer true and every answer meaningful and practical. When you're fully rendered to God, all of your answers, all your actions, all of your motives, where do they lead back to? They lead back to God, right? And when Jesus' answer led back to God, they marveled and they went away speechless. Yeah. I, I wish I could have been there when these disciples had to report to their bosses. That would have been great. Maybe we'll get some insight into that in heaven. Let's move on. Let's talk about the Sadducees. I'm not used to the clock now that we changed our times. It says, the same day. Now, either that's out of complete arrogance or, or total stupidity, to witness the way that Jesus so quickly and, and everything responded to those guys, they're going to go the same day? All right. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him. Okay. So, uh, now real quick, we haven't actually seen much interaction uh, between Jesus and the Sadducees. Okay. They showed up in Matthew 16, with the Pharisees, and what they were doing is they'd say, show us a sign, you know, prove to us who you are. But that's all of Jesus' interaction with these guys recorded in the Gospel of Matthew up to this point. But here they are, they're brave indeed. Now, the Sadducees, it's somewhat of a religious sect, okay? But it consisted of the wealthy aristocracy. The Sadducees had actually managed to thrive under Roman rule. They used it to their advantage, they grew wealthy, but of course, it was at the expense of the people. Okay? They were more concerned about maintaining the status quo with Rome for the sake of social and financial stability than they were anything with the things of God. Okay? It was all about position. It was all about money. Religiously, they were somewhat what we could call Jewish deists. They believed in God, but they kind of denied his supernatural involvement with man. Okay? They, they rejected the existence of angels. They rejected any kind of afterlife for humanity. They believed that the body and the soul died and then ceased to exist. So there's no, there's no punishment for the wicked. There's no reward for the righteous. So no resurrection, as the text says. Everything ended at death for them. Now they did say that they accepted all of the books of Moses. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers... Deuteronomy, but when you learn about what they actually believed, it wasn't very much of Moses' books that they believed. These were really the, 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 the liberal uh, religious people of the day, okay? But they made up a, a, a portion of the religious ruling class among the Jews. 
Here's the crazy thing. The high priest was a Sadducee, and most of the priests were Sadducees. What a sad state of affairs for the people of Israel, right? Yeah. High priests and priests that don't even believe. Okay, it's a lot like with the Russian Orthodox Church. Many of the Russian Orthodox priests are atheists. It's crazy, okay? These guys are really, we might say, the opposite of the Pharisees, and uh, the two did not get along, okay? And Jesus didn't play well with them either. So here they are. They're like the Pharisees trying to discredit Jesus before the people. Here's the challenge they pose. They say, teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there was with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also and the third, even to the seventh, last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. All right. The Sadducees are referring to the law of leveret marriage in Deuteronomy 25. And there the law was established for the purpose of passing on the dead brother's name in Israel. And it was to protect the widow from being passed around like material goods. Okay? So it was actually a good law. But the text has nothing to do with the resurrection has nothing to do with life after death. It was probably, though, a theological point that was used by the Sadducees to jab the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection. If the resurrection is true, what about this? So apparently the, the Pharisees must have assumed, without biblical precedent, that life resumed in heaven as it was on earth. And therefore, married couples on earth would be married in heaven. If that's the case, though, who gets this woman? Okay. My first thought is, maybe it should be up to the woman, okay? <laughs> but Jesus provides the reality here. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Slightly insulting, okay? So indeed, like the Pharisees, they were ignorant of the scriptures, but where they strayed, really, as we said before, was God's supernatural kind of intervention or involvement with men. You see, the Pharisees saw the scriptures through the lens of oral tradition, which led to some very strange conclusions. But the Pharisees, or sorry, the Sadducees saw the scriptures through the lens of unbelief, okay? which led them to mock those who believed in the scriptures. Okay? So Jesus' comment to these men, of course, it's immediately a rebuke, just like it was to the, the disciples of the Pharisees when he called them hypocrites. But the rebuke is, is that no one in religious leadership should ever undermine the scriptures or what God has affirmed in them. You're uninformed and you're just completely ignorant. Okay. So here's Jesus' response about the woman and her husband. Husbands, seven of them. He says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So this is interesting. Just in one breath, Jesus addresses a number of their errors. In the same breath, he defends the resurrection and the existence of angels, right? All of it, okay? Both of which are taught in the books of Moses, which they claim to believe, but clearly they did not. Now, to be clear, Jesus did not say that people in the resurrection become angels. We do not. I don't care what the cartoons of Warner Brothers says, okay? It's not the way it is. But like the angels who do not marry... Men in the resurrection do not marry, and women in the resurrection are not given in marriage. We're resurrected into eternal life 
where no such relationships are necessary. Now, if there is a passage of Scripture that I do not like, it's this one. But I realize some married people think, that's all right with me. (laughs) I don't doubt anything that Jesus says. I just would prefer something different. Okay, fair enough. I believe it, but I don't necessarily like it. Yeah, so Shandy might appreciate it. But uh, I trust that God will work it out, all of it, when I'm in his presence. Okay. Now, real quick, some commentators say that because there's no procreation in the eternal state, there's no need for marriage. But biblically speaking, procreation was not God's stated purpose for marriage. It's a responsibility of marriage, but it's not the purpose. The purpose was to banish loneliness by way of a covenant relationship. Also, I didn't get married to have children. I didn't. I got married because I was crazy in love with Shandy, and I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. Okay? That's just the way it was. It was later from the book of Genesis that we realized that we had a responsibility to have children. And when that dawned upon us, God gave us the desire to have children. Okay? But I didn't marry Shandy so she could make babies for me. Okay? <laughs> now, the only answer that I have for this passage is that Christ in the resurrection is going to remedy the problem of loneliness with relationships that are eternally meaningful and fulfilling, most of all with him. Okay? That's all I have to say about that verse at this time. I'm still taking it up with God. All right? But Jesus moves on. He says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? And then he's going to quote from one of the books that they say that they believe in, okay? Exodus. God says, I am, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Yeah, Jesus didn't want these guys getting away without getting their theology corrected. Okay? He's already defended the existence of angels, which they denied. He's already answered their question about marriage and the resurrection. And now he confronts their disbelief in life after death and the rejection of the resurrection itself. So Jesus takes from Exodus 3, 6. You remember when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, saying that not that I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am their God. Okay? The present tense implies that he is still the God of these men because they're still alive. alive. God is not the, the God of those who have died and ceased to exist, as the Sadducees believed, but he is the God of those who live after their bodies have perished and are awaiting the resurrection and the glorification of their bodies. This is great. This passage is important for a number of reasons besides Jesus' argument for life after death and the resurrection. It affirms a number of valuable things for the inspiration, the veracity, the historicity of the Old Testament. I don't know if you were paying attention. Let's talk about it, okay? By Jesus quoting this verse for a defense of the doctrine of life beyond death and the subsequent resurrection, he's affirming that Moses is a real person of history. Isn't that important? Coming out of the mouth of God? That Moses' writings are historically true and accurately recorded. How many times people say, well, the Bible's been translated so many times, who can trust it? Jesus. He remembers exactly what he said to Moses. Okay? Also, that Moses had an encounter with God at the burning bush. That Moses' writings are divinely authoritative. 
Because that's what Jesus is using them for right here, to prove the doctrine and to rebuke the Sadducees. Also, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were historical persons who knew God and were known by God. That the scriptures are inspired by God. And here's the, the, a finer point. The scriptures are inspired by God down to the very grammar associated with the individual words themselves. The grammar of the words I am versus I was radically changes the meaning of the text. Also, Jesus' use of this passage informs us that not only are the words and the grammar inspired, but the scriptures are inspired all the way down to what is implied in the text by them. He believed, Jesus believed that every word, all of the grammar, all that the scriptures affirm, and everything they imply is true and divinely authoritative, without error. So if you have a debate with the veracity of scripture, who is your debate with? You have to take it up with Christ, because he quoted it even as we have it today. It's all there. It's important that our understanding of biblical inspiration, that we both believe and affirm what Jesus, the Son of God, believed and affirmed about the scriptures. So if you want to know what to believe about the Old Testament scriptures or anything else of significance, I got somebody you can ask. Yeah. Whereas the disciples of the Pharisees affirmed, he is true and teaches the way of God in truth and he is no respecter of persons. He will give you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth because he is the God of truth. And scripture says in Titus 3, Hebrews 6, he can't even lie. Everything that comes out of his mouth is absolutely true. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. The next verse says that, the, that Jesus silenced the Sadducees. To the Pharisees' great pleasure, by the way. The Greek word used for silence refers to a, a muzzle used to muzzle a beast. So Jesus gave these Sadducees a proper education. Yep. Their nonsense, it had to be muzzled. Okay? And this must continue today. In prescribing the responsibilities for elders, Paul says this, an elder, he must hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. So in the tradition of Jesus, pastors and elders must rebuke. They must confront and correct those who contradict sound doctrine. If, if, if they fail to do that, the local fellowship will be poisoned by it, and it will eventually be destroyed. But when leadership does execute this responsibility, they have to maintain an appropriate disposition. This is so that you can keep myself and the other pastors and elders accountable. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And when they rebuke and correct, it has to be employed with the same methods employed by Jesus. The scriptures must be the standard. They must be the source of our authority. Amen. We should be like Christ and give the truth, the whole truth. Nothing but the truth because by golly, we got it. And Jesus says it's true. All right. I think we have one more song because we're going to, are we over the time? I can't remember. What time are we getting out? 1030. 
So we got a couple minutes for one more song. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Whose idea was it to change the time? It's probably mine. <laughs> oh, Father, we love you. And Lord, I'm so grateful for your word. I'm grateful that, that challenges have been coming against it for centuries. And day by day, year after year, by the evidence that is discovered and presented, it just attests to the veracity, the historicity, accuracy, authority, inspiration, sufficiency of your word. Lord, we thank you for this precious gift. We pray that you would 